This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Before I start, you'll notice that there are actually two speakers here. I am going to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Um, the other speaker listed here is Carol Padden, uh, who uh, was summoned to Sacramento in her deaconal duties. And so Carol asked me to, to present the work. Carol and I have known each other uh, since she was a toddler. And um, we've been doing this. This particular work is joint work of a large number of people spread around the world. And, and I happen to be the, the other member of this group present here. And so I've been given this honor. Uh, here are some of the other places. There's UCSD here, of course, Tufts University in Boston, and the University of Haifa in Israel. If you look very carefully, you can see me. Um, <laughs> let me see. Uh, where is... In any case, uh, you could see a head in the, behind the van. My job for the last 15 years has been to drive the van. Because <laughs> that's a man's job, and that's what I do. Um, okay, um, I'll talk very briefly about sign languages of the world. First, really most important thing is uh, that there is no single universal sign language. There are many sign languages, and, and we've actually learned a little bit about uh, Nicaraguan sign language. Uh, sign languages in general are, are young languages. Um, they're usually small languages. There are some very large ones, like American Sign Language, but American Sign Language or Japanese Sign Language, those are actually atypical uh, in, in terms of their size. What are these languages used for? Well, they're used for social communication, like any other language. Most sign languages are actually quite young. The ones we're going to be talking about are very new and were actually created spontaneously in much the same way as Nicaraguan Sign Language. Others, uh, the oldest sign language for which we have actual records uh, is French Sign Language, from which American Sign Language comes. But we actually have uh, uh, records from uh, classical Greek times indicating that, that people were signing back then. And there is a wonderful picture that I, I don't have here of a Greek vase that seems to indicate people signing uh, thousands of years ago. Most sign languages are fairly small languages, and um, those are the ones that we're going to be kind of concentrating on here. We're also interested in new sign languages, sign languages that are emerging. And this is very much within the spirit of what we're talking about here. You can actually watch languages evolve. You can't watch language as a human ability evolve, but individual languages you can actually watch. Now, these new sign languages, are, they're, they're created under a variety of conditions, villages, schools, wherever deaf people can find each other, they will pretty much create a sign language. And the patterns uh, of how these sign languages are transmitted vary quite widely among each other. But what really matters is that sign languages usually start off uh, as being iconic. Uh, so we're very much within some of the stuff that, that, that Kenny showed you. 
um, where you start off with, with some sort of icon iconic patterns. Eventually, they become less iconic, and this is something I could show you examples of later. It's really quite wonderful. But they're all built on the resources of the body. So people have a body, and they use this physical body in order to communicate visually with uh, one another. All right, sign languages of the world. There are many, and there are many different types. Uh, home sign is this, the, the language of the individual who grows up in, in a household where everyone else is hearing. There are family sign languages. Um, a case that just emerged recently is something that, that is called natural sign language. It's just a sign language that's grown up in Nepal among a community of people. It's called natural because it, wasn't, it, it, it grew up by itself, not under any... Uh, kind of forced circumstances. Village sign languages, that's a very recent, I'd say the last uh, oh, 20 years or so, people have begun, been interested in that. And that, that's the, the, our work basically is uh, we work with village sign languages. And then, of course, the Nicaraguan sign language, which grew up in an urban environment, but which is also very new. The point is there are these many, many different kinds of sign languages. So our question um, is, well, you know, how, how do they get that way, right? We know what they're for, and we know uh, quite vividly, as we've seen examples already, these people can communicate quite well. But how did they get there, right? And how did they get there so quickly? Even the youngest sign languages have grammatical categories. They have fairly well-defined word orders. They have modifiers, they have the, these, these kind of trappings of, of fully, um, fully uh, evolved sign languages. So how did they get there? Well, the way they get there is basically, as we said, by using the body, and originally by using the body in iconic ways. Now, I'm going to be talking to you about a very, very small type of organization, um, but I think uh, it is emblematic of how sign languages can use iconic patterns to organize themselves. Okay, So uh, we have to make a distinction between um, two different types of iconicity, and I'll get to you in, in a second how that works. So what we're going to do is, in a, we're kind of combining, I think, two two of the sorts of presentations that you've seen here. We're going to be looking at gesturers, non-signing hearing gesturers, right? And we're going to compare how, what their gestures look like with the gesturers of, with the signs of signers of new sign languages, right? And what, in this particular task, we're going to concentrate on a fairly narrow task in which we ask people both hearing gesturers and signers, to identify objects in a picture task. So we show them a picture, and then we just ask them to describe that picture. And for the, for the, for the hearing people, we just say, please gesture, do not speak. And for the signers, we just ask them to, to, to sign the thing for us. Okay? So that's the task. Um, we show them pictures of tools, 
and you'll see why it's important. We vary the number of tools so they don't worry about whether, you know, the, 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 the task, we kind of are distracting them in a way. So they think we care about how many, but we don't really care about how many. We just care about what it is. All right, now, very important point. We're going to distinguish two types of iconicity. The first we're calling here imagistic iconicity, and that is simply uh, to, to, to depict something. But what we're really interested in is pattern iconicity. And this is, again, within the spirit of what you've seen so far today. What the point is that when languages emerge, patterns emerge, right? So we're interested in the emergence of patterns. We'll see here that this is a very surprising pattern that's going to emerge here. Um, and it's, it's, it's very small. It's not a big pattern. It's a small pattern. Um, but, but I hope you'll see that it's a pretty cool pattern. Okay? All right. So what we're going to show you is we, uh, we show a picture of, a, of three paintbrushes. And we ask UCSD undergraduates to depict those in gesture. And you can see what they're depicting is how the hand holds the object. That's what they're doing, right? So these are handling. They're not very well dressed, but you know. <laughs> we'll have to ignore that. It's your basic UCSD undergraduates. This guy's quite animated. All right, so everybody sees what they do. Now what we're going to do is we're going to show you the same uh, task, except these are young signers of, of Syed Bedouin Sign Language, which we have talked about at previous CARTA, um, CARTA meetings. This is a brand new sign language that was created autochthonously in, um, in an isolated Bedouin village by a population initially of four siblings. This is a village with a very high rate of recessive deafness. Okay. And you're going to see a big difference. What you're going to see is that these people don't just depict how you handle the object, but they actually show what the shape of this tool is. Right? All of them. And by the way, we haven't selected this. I mean, these are, this is what they do. People of different ages, right? Oh, let me ask, it's a question. Did anybody notice the word order difference between the two populations? Right? So the, the, the UCSD undergraduates do the number first and then the, then the thing, and, and the, the Bedouin signers do the thing first and then the number. So they actually have a different word order, which I think is very cool. Um, that's the sort of thing that linguists think is cool. Right? <laughs> okay, so... Um, so we have, this, we have these two terms. We have this term handling, right, to talk about what people are doing. And then we have this term instrument to talk about showing the actual thing. 
So what we're going to show you is there's actually a difference between the two groups. Basically, the gesturers concentrate on simply the handling, how you use it, whereas the signers will depict this uh, as an instrument. In other words, they show you how you use it, but they show, they're most interested in, in, in what it, you know, that, how to depict what the thing is. Okay? All right. Again, and we're looking at this in terms of a pattern of iconicity that these things share. Okay? All right. Um, and you can see this actually not just across uh, communities, but even within a community. So um, what we have here is a, uh, a hearing Bedouin gesturer, and he will tend to use the handling, whereas the, um, the, the, the deaf member of the same community will also depict the object as an instrument. Right? Handling versus instrument. Okay, now, question is, what, do we get differences across groups? And uh, that is, of course, what happens. So here are hearing Americans, they're overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly handling. Hearing Bedouins show almost the same distribution. Here is the Bedouin signers, right? The opposite. And guess what? Um, we get the almost the same pattern for American sign language, right? So hearing gesturers concentrate on handling, whereas the 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 deaf signers concentrate on the instruments. And again. We've given you the same graph, but in a slightly different format to see how this works. Okay, now, I'm going to show you another experiment that actually, I think, gives you maybe a slightly more subtle insight into all, how all of this works. So what we do in this experiment is we compare responses to pictures with responses to video clips. Oh, by the way, just a small autobiographical point here. We used to use pictures all the time. When we first went into the, video, into the Bedouin village, we would just show people pictures. And, and the older uh, Bedouin signers really had no idea what to do. And we thought that, well, it's just a picture. Doesn't everybody know how to name a picture? I mean, after all, you do that in first grade. And then it suddenly emerged. Duh. First grade, these people never got the first grade. It turns out that picture naming is a learned kind of task. It's nothing that, there's nothing natural about naming pictures. People living out there in the wild don't have pictures that they can point at. Um, so uh, this was really a lesson, a, a cross-cultural lesson to, um, to us. But we were, uh, uh, we were interested in whether simply showing people a static picture versus showing picture people a video would have an effect. And, of course, it did. Otherwise, we uh, wouldn't bother to show it to you. <laughs> right? Okay, so this is what we showed people. So here is simply a brush, and here is a, um, a video clip of somebody using the brush. Right? Everybody sees that? Okay, and we compare people's responses to those. And it is, of course, actually what you might expect. Um, so when you show people a video, even gesturers, 
they're much more likely to use handling. But uh, when you show gesturers a picture, then um, they are much more likely to use instruments. Now, I, it's a little bit of tortured reasoning here, um, but the fact that they were responding so, um, so overwhelmingly to the handling response, the gesturers were, were responding so overwhelmingly to the handling response, even with, even with the pictures, shows you that there is this major difference between how the gesturers are organizing their signal and how the um, signers are organizing their symbol. Right? So what we see is that, uh, that there is this difference right? that has been somehow conventionalized and amplified in this one sign language, um, which is the, the Bedouin sign language, and um, even more so in, in, in the sign language, in American sign language. I'm not going to talk about it here, but um, it turns out that when you look at other sign languages, we looked at Israeli sign language, it doesn't work that way. Um, so I think what's going on is that signers pick up, this is, they pick up on these patterns. That's what we've, had, what we've seen before in earlier presentations. They're picking up on these patterns, and what matters more is the consistency of the abstract underlying pattern. This is a very abstract notion of, 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 of handling versus also depicting the instrument that they are picking up on. And by the way, when you show people pieces of fruit, this doesn't happen. Uh, because, of course, pieces of fruit are not, they're not instruments. At least, not usually. But okay. Um, all right. I think what's you know the the one takeaway lesson that is really important is that languages are people. People have a drive to communicate. We've talked about this. They have a drive to share, um, which uh, Tecumseh Fitch coined this wonderful German word, which is Mitteilungsbedürfnis, which. <laughs> Only in German, right? But it basically means a need to share. And, and what we're seeing in all of these cases is that you can, you can increase the power of your sharing by organizing your system. And that's what is going on here. So thank you. And Carol, thanks you as well. <laughs>The uh, basic problem uh, I address here is uh, one of how did languages come to do what they do in terms of taking small, meaningless units and combining them to make meaningful words. So using some English examples, sat, sit, sad. Each time I changed one of the sounds, we get a different word. Sat, bat, fat, same thing. So uh, what I'm going to argue for is that this, well, this is a combinatorial system. And by looking at sign language evidence, we can see what things are like in some ways before such a system evolves and uh, get some clues about how su- uh, such a system evolves. 
Uh, I'm going to be using primarily data from American Sign Language. And a lot of people, when they uh, see signs, they say, oh, it's all iconic. And a lot of the signs uh, look iconic, i.e. that you could guess the meaning from seeing the sign. So, for example, drink, bird, house, all of those, you can get a pretty good idea of the meaning from the sign itself. However, uh, and those look like, uh, they look almost, they look like gestures. You're gesturing something about the meaning. But really, in a mature sign language, like American Sign Language, the, it has the same type of combinatoriality within the word that, we, that I illustrated with that, those examples from English. So I'm going to, and the, the signs consist of smaller parts combined in different ways to produce different signs with different meanings. To find out what these smaller parts are, uh, we have to find examples of signs that differ in only one respect. And I'm going to show you some examples now where we can identify the smaller parts of the signs by comparing signs that differ in only one respect, and at the same time be illustrating a second point that you, uh, in most cases you cannot guess the meaning from seeing the sign if you don't already uh, know the language. So first I'll show some signs that differ only in hand shape. Versus. Versus. And unless you know the language, you probably don't know that this means change, this means translate, and this means interpret. Similarly, bird, which I showed you, print or publish, 20. <clears throat> These show that the place of articulation, there'll be a lot of that later, makes a difference. So bird articulated at the edge of the lip, print or publish on the other hand. And uh, signs can differ only in movement, name, uh, short, knife, egg. All of those, I don't think you would guess the meaning from seeing them the first time and uh, illustrate how signs can differ in movement. And we'll concentrate on these three things. So each sign consists of a hand shape, a place of articulation, and a movement. There's also sometimes orientation plays a role. I will set those cases aside uh, since they won't be essential to the points that are made here. There's a, there's a uh, each Sign language has an inventory of hand shapes, places of articulation, and movements. And uh, a, it's a combinatorial phonological system that puts them together, yielding different signs with different meanings. Some, some signs are fully iconic. So bird, all of its... Uh, smaller parts, which I'll call formatives, all of its formatives contribute to the uh, iconicity. The hand shape is L, 
the movement, the index touches the thumb twice. Place of articulation, POA, is at the edge of the lip. And all three of those contribute to the iconicity. And, and Bird shares handshape and movement, as I showed you before, with print, print, publish, or 20. And the place of articulation is the same as in drink or in famous, where you also at the edge of the lips. Uh, another sign that it, so Bird is fully iconic. All of these contribute to the iconicity. Some signs are partially iconic. And an example of that is heart one. I'll be talking altogether about two signs. Heart, this is an older form. Later we'll see a newer form. So that is this heart. Very iconic. The movement, a heart shape. Place of articulation, left side of chest, about where the heart is located. But there is a, uh, an arbitrary element. The hand shape is this open eight Handshape, which has nothing to do with heart. It's completely arbitrary. And uh, some people interpret the, some signers interpret the heart shape the way I've been doing it, more or less the heart shape you see on Valentine's. For some, it's an oval. For some, it's a circle. An important distinction that's going throughout this talk is the distinction between gestures and signs. And so I've uh, coined a, a notation here to keep them different. On the left is a gesture. Trace a heart shape over region of the heart, which could be done with any, any finger or fingers or combination, as opposed to the sign. So the, the gesture is in these double angle brackets. A sign has these three formatives, and each of those is enclosed uh, in square brackets. Uh, the very important here is the gestural hypothesis that iconic signs evolved from holistic gestures. So uh, that the sign heart on the right uh, evolved from the gesture on the left. And uh, a piece of evidence for that, if that, in that is the case, that the sign heart, heart one, evolved from the gesture heart, it, this, this hypothesis makes a prediction that early on there would have been variation in the finger or fingers used to trace the heart shape since uh, that hand shape plays no role in the gesture itself, which is just trace the heart shape. It doesn't say anything about which finger or fingers. And in fact, there is evidence that that is correct, that there was variation early on. A couple of books for, uh, I'm indebted to Brandon Skates for bringing to my attention, that an 1884 book, Deaf Mutes Describe a Small Surface Over Heart and Pointing Downwards, saying nothing about which finger or fingers. And Higgins, 1923, Right Index Points to Heart, or right thumb and index trace shape of heart in region of heart, or both index tips trace shape of heart. And notice that none of these are the open eight hand shape used for heart in ASL. So this uh, is one kind of evidence for the gestural origin of the sign heart. Now, uh, what 
distinguishes one sign from another. And uh, I'm going to show you two signs now uh, that differ only in place of articulation. And uh, this one means Canada. This one means Yom Kippur. <laughs> and the only difference is whether I, I uh, do it at the place of articulation on my right side here of the chest or the left side. Okay. Now, for those of you who do not know ASL, I'm going to do a sign, and you tell me which it means, Canada or Yom Kippur. How many say Canada? How many say Yom Kippur? Okay, it looks about evenly split to the extent I can see. Well, actually, this means Canada. But before I said this means Canada and this means Yom Kippur, why doesn't this mean Yom Kippur? I'm doing it with my left hand before I did it with my right hand. What this shows is that the relevant distinction is not between right and left on the chest. And I'll introduce the terms ipsilateral, which means, uh, this is Latin, ipsi, same, lateral, side. Ipsila an ipsilateral sign, uh, a sign's pl place of, or of articulation, is on the same side as the articulating hand. Contralateral signs articulated on the opposite side. Uh, so Canada, ipsilateral, and I'm right-handed. This is Canada, this is Yom Kippur. A left-handed person, this is Canada, this is Yom Kippur. The crucial thing is whether it's ipsilateral or contralateral. Now, let's go back to heart, and I'm going to show you the, uh, the other sign uh, the other sign for heart, which I'm right-handed, so this is heart. And it seems like the place of articulation is iconically motivated. But how would a left-hander sign heart? Why? Because it's contralateral. I'm signing, I'm right-handed, I sign it over here, where the heart is located more or less. But for a left-hander, it's also contralateral, so it'll be signed over here. So this is, this is an important fact, and this illustrates the major transformation or, uh, that has taken place in what I'm, gonna, what I'm talking about today. Namely, that uh, the formal characterization of place of articulation as either ipsilateral or contralateral uh, trumps the iconicity. These things started out iconic with, uh, with this, the movement being iconic, place of articulation where the, hand is, where the heart is located. But once uh, they evolve from gestures to signs, we now have a system where the formal properties of the signs take over uh, and trump the original iconic motivation. 
of uh, the form, from, coming from the original iconic uh, gesture. This gives us uh, a way of, of seeing properties, formal properties of signs as opposed to the gestures from which they derive. And right and left have no place, but ipsilateral, contralateral are essential. So let me show you some other signs now where you can see the same thing. So direction of movement is either ipsilateral or contralateral. So I'll show you the signs for right and left. When I sign right, my hand moves to the right. When I sign left, my hand moves to the left. But really, when I sign right, my hand is moving in the ipsilateral direction. And when I sign left, my hand is moving in the contralateral direction. So when a left-handed person signs right, the hand moves in the ipsilateral direction, which is to the left. And when a left-handed person signs left, the hand moves in the contralateral direction, which is to the right. This shows very clearly that what's relevant is the formal properties of of the uh, place of articulation, not the original iconic motivation, which you see in the right-handed signing, but the left-handed signing uh, turns that on its head. Uh, also, I, I want to dispel any idea that you might have gotten that the, gest- the gestural source of particular signs might only have been in the distant past and also that, there, that there's any physical difference necessarily between gestures and signs. So the sign Yom Kippur that I've been uh, illustrating has a gestural source, which is this, which is physically exactly the same as the sign. Uh, it's done in the synagogue service on Yom Kippur. There's a prayer. Uh, it's a communal confession of various kinds of sins. Each type of sin, as it's mentioned the worshipers go like this. What do the left-handers do? This is the gesture that is the source of the sign Yom Kippur, physically identical to it. For left-handers, in the synagogue service, they do this. Uh, it goes to the place where the heart is located, which is here on the left side. But when they sign the left uh, when, the, when they sign the sign uh, Yom Kippur, which is evolved from that gesture, it's on the opposite side, the contralateral side, because Yom Kippur is a contralateral sign. Okay. Uh, so, uh, this difference between gestures and signs is the key thing. The signs have certain formal properties. They evolved from gestures, but once they have these formal properties, they can turn out uh, quite differently. And uh, we can generalize, and some of the other papers have talked about this, uh, Mark, Mark Aronoff and Carol Patton's just before this, the, of a general a more general uh, gestural hypothesis that uh, sign languages had their earliest stages in gestural communication and have evolved 
from, uh, from that to current sign languages. And a very uh, great confirmation of this is the uh, Asaid Bedouin sign language that Mark Aronoff just mentioned in his presentation, where uh, he and three others have been studying this new Bedouin sign language in southern Israel, which does not have a combinatorial system, a combinatorial phonological system putting parts together. as we saw, as we saw here. Okay, one last point. Comparative cross-species evidence from language experiments with chimpanzees. These are chimpanzees that people signed with for years and years. Rivas did 22 hours of videotape and eliminated all cases where they just repeated what the human had signed within previous five seconds. Here's the number of different uh, signs each of these chimps produced. And their four most frequent signs accounted for 58%, 45%, etc. of their total out- output. Why? The main thing is, after years of this, why is their vocabulary so small? The explanation, the chimps learn no signs at all, only a small set of holistic gestures. And a deeper explanation for that uh, is that they don't have the combinatorial abilities that humans have to have a combinatorial system putting uh, meaningful words or signs together from smaller units. This This suggests strongly that these combinatorial abilities of humans developed after the split between the human and chimpanzee lineages. Thank you. I should first give equal billing to uh, Ava Wittenberg, who who did a lot of this work with me. Can you uh, identify yourself there? Yay, right there. Um, One of the big questions for anthropogeny is how did language evolve in our species? And even, this is a big question, my almost five-year-old granddaughter asked a couple of weeks ago, she asked, um, how did people make up words when there weren't words before? So, I mean, it's an obvious question. Uh, Well, here's the thing. Languages are learned by children And their progress looks like learning other things like motor skills and social skills. So a lot of people think there's nothing more to it than that. Humans just got to be good at learning stuff. So I want to restate the question, not how did human language evolve, but how did humans evolve so as to be able to learn language as well as all those other things. And in order to answer this, you have to ask another question. When you learn a language, what do you end up knowing? For starters, knowing a language is being able to map between patterns of sounds or gestures on one hand, and meanings or thoughts or concepts, whatever they are. So something like this. So when you're speaking, you're going upwards in this picture from meanings to producing sounds, and when you're understanding, you're going downward. Now let me add a little bit of the big picture. Conceptual structures are also linked to perception and action. So you can talk about what you see, and you can talk about what actions you plan to carry out, and so on. Now, just for fun, 
what do you get if you take away phonetic patterns like this? Uh, well, you get an organism that can perceive and have thoughts and act based on those thoughts. And I think this is a plausible sketch of ape cognition, which is pretty sophisticated, but it doesn't have language. So the evolution of language had to involve at least a new ability to map concepts to sounds and gestures and to use these communicatively. Well, we've been hearing this all day. Well, linguists actually think there's a good deal more to, the, more to that than language. First comes phonological structure, which is the systematized organization of sounds or gestures, and we just heard about that from David Perlmutter uh, in ASL. Second one is morphology, the internal structure of words such that a word like, uh, say, procedurally can be seen as built from proceed plus your to form procedure plus al to perform procedural plus li to perform procedurally. And the third one is syntax, um, the uh, organization of words into phrases and sentences. So syntax determines things like canonical word order. So if you hear something like the boy kissed the girl, you know who did the kissing and who got kissed. It also allows you to elaborate descriptions of characters and events into phrases. So something like the boy in the blue hat and red sneakers tried to kiss the girl that he loved. And you still know that the boy did the kissing, even though the word boy is nowhere near kiss. And you also know that, that he loved the girl, even though boy is nowhere near love. So language in modern humans involves this part circled in red of the network of cognitive organization. And what's evolved in humans is the ability to learn to do this kind of thing, to turn thoughts into sounds by structuring them into words and phrases, and to be able to pull thoughts out of the sounds that other people make. Well, how could this have happened? Uh, basically, there's no direct evidence for what our ancestors talked about, and when they started talking, there aren't any fossil vowels. Uh, the usual way to test evolutionary scenarios is comparison to other species. Uh, but here it isn't too helpful. As we've heard already today, modern apes don't, don't, don't learn very much in the way of human languages, and they certainly don't invent language spontaneously as deaf children do in the absence of sign language input, as we also have heard about today. So there's a big cognitive gap between apes and humans here. Another way to form plausible hypotheses about evolution is through reverse engineering, figuring out what components could have been useful in the absence of others. So think about the eye. A primitive retina would have been useful for vision without the muscles that move the eyeballs, although it might be more limited than our modern vision. On the other hand, without a retina, the muscles wouldn't help you see at all. So it makes sense that something like the retina probably evolved before the muscles. I want to propose something like that for language. So a primitive system for communicating thoughts via sounds or gestures is useful without phonology, morphology, or syntax. These components can improve an existing communication system, but they're useless on their own. So if the components of language evolved in some order, it makes sense that the, that the con connection between phonetics and meaning came first, and then these further refinements going from there... To, um, so the hypothesis is that this is the kind of system that some ancestors of modern humans could learn. I can't prove that this is the way language evolved, but what I'll tr try to do today is to show you that simpler systems of this sort exist in the languages of today and show you how these systems, a little bit about how these systems work. And the basic idea comes from Derek Bickerton. Uh, he proposed that there's a form of language that he called proto-language, 
which surfaces in many different circumstances. And he proposed that this form of language is a relic of early stages in the human or hominid system. Uh, I'm going to suggest that this form of Uh, language is a subset of the full language system. Um, It emits morphology and syntax, and I'll call it a linear grammar. What is a linear grammar like? Well, it has words, and the words have to come in some order. Uh, They map to meanings, but there's no structure. Other, there aren't syntactic phrases like the boy in in the blue hat and red sneakers, or structure inside words, as we saw with the word procedurally. Now, in this kind of language, word order could still matter. You could say boy kiss girl and mean the boy did the kissing and the girl got kissed, not vice versa. But it wouldn't be because the um, subject precedes the verb and the verb precedes the object because a linear grammar can't have syntactic things like nouns and verbs and subjects and objects. What it still has is semantic notions like the word denoting an actor, here the boy, precedes the word denoting the action, namely kiss. That is, this kind of language would map directly between linear order in phonology and the meaning. Now, a linear grammar doesn't have morphology, so it can't have things like tenses and agreement on verbs. So you'll get boy kiss girl, not boy kissed girl or boy kisses girl. You'll leave it up to the context to indicate when this kissing took place. And you might also expect not to have functional items like definite articles, which perform more of a syntactic role, namely marking noun phrases, than a semantic one. And a linear grammar is linear, So it can't have subordinate clauses like uh, the relative clause in the girl that he loved. You might still express this thought, but maybe as two sentences. You might say something like, boy, love girl, kiss girl, something like that. Well, I want to tell you about some systems that look like this. Uh, The first one is pigeons. These are the early stages of contact languages, as we also heard about earlier today. This is great. This symposium just set up my talk perfectly. Um, Pigeons are often described uh, as having no subordination, no morphology, no grammatical words like the, and they have unstable word order that's governed by semantic principles like actor before action. If the context permits, you can leave out characters in the action. So if you already knew about the girl, you might just say boy kiss, where English would make you use a pronoun like the boy kissed her. So from the perspective of linear grammar, we can ask, is there any evidence that pigeons have parts of speech like nouns and verbs? Is there any evidence for syntactic phrases? And my preliminary conclusion is there's very little evidence for it, and that suggests that uh, um, pigeons would be a good example of a linear grammar. Later on, of course, contact languages add many features of more complex languages like conventionalized word order, grammatical categories, syntactic subordination, again, as we heard today, and these kinds of languages are called creoles. And Ava and I see the transition form from a pigeon to creole as going not from it's not a language, it's just junk, to a language, now it's a language, but just adding some syntactic and morphological principles that weren't there in the, print, in the pigeon, just goosing it up a little bit. Um, for a second case, Wolfgang Klein and Clive Perdue did a multi-language longitudinal study of immigrants all over Europe learning second languages, and they found that all speakers achieved a stage of what you might call semi-proficiency that uh, uh, Klein and Perdue called the basic variety. Many speakers went on to improve on it, but others just stopped there. That's as far as they got. 
And in this stage, as they describe it, there's no inflectional morphology, no tenses, no plurals, and so on, no sentential subordination. You can leave out known characters freely. There's simple and semantically based principles of word order, including our favorite actor before action. That is, from our standpoint, the basic variety also looks like another kind of linear grammar. Third case uh, is home sign. Uh, As we've heard already, the language is invented by deaf children who have no exposure to assigned language. And Susan Golden Meadow has shown that they have at most rudimentary morphology. They freely emit known characters. And on our analysis, they only have a, a semantic distinction of object versus action, not a syntactic distinction of noun versus verb. Uh, The word order is kind of probabilistic, but if anything, it's based on semantic roles. Home signers do produce some sentences with multiple verbs or action words, if you don't think they have verbs. Uh, Golden Meadow has in the past described these as embedding. Uh, We think these are rudimentary serial verb constructions, which I can't explain to non-linguists, I'm sorry, without (laughs) embedding. (laughs) Um, So it looks to us like... um, a linear grammar with possibly a bit of morphology added. And I should add, uh, to be perfectly honest, Golden Meadow doesn't agree with us altogether. So this is controversial. Another case we've looked at is village sign languages, which develop in isolated communities where there's a significant occurrence of hereditary deafness. And the best known of these is ABSL, which we've just heard about from Mark Aronoff. I'm going to talk about Central Taurus Sign Language, or CTSL, which is spoken in a couple of remote villages in the mountains of Turkey. Uh, this language came to my attention two years ago through my student, Rabia Ergen, who remarkably has deaf family members who live in the village and speak it. You want to raise your hand, Rabia? Our newest celebrity, there she is. Uh, Rabia, along with Naomi Caselli, Irit Meira, and some of the people from Carol Padden's group from about which we've heard already have been documenting this language. And what they find is that the language has a fair amount of morphology, but there's very little evidence for syntactic structure. In sentences involving one character, so uh, somebody jumped or somebody fell down or something, uh, the word order is normally the actor preceding the action. Uh, If there are two character sentences with inanimate patients, like the boy rolled the ball, it's normally... Well, maybe you put in the actor, maybe you don't, and then you put in the thing that's acted upon and then the action. But if there are two animate characters, so the semantics alone um, can't resolve the potential ambiguity, word order isn't very stable. It's a bit vague whether the boy kissed the girl or vice versa, and there's a lot of reliance. People rely a lot on pragmatics and context. In fact, there's a very strong tendency to mention only one of the characters in an event, no matter how many there are. So CTSL looks like a linear grammar augmented by a substantial amount of morphology. And this isn't too far off what we've seen in ABSL and the earlier stages of Nicaraguan sign language, as we heard from Annie Sengas. Now, what's cool, I think, is that um, these less complex systems aren't confined to emerging languages. Townsend and Bever discuss what they call semantically based interpretive strategies that influence language comprehension. Hearers tend to rely in part on semantically based principles of word order, like actor precedes action, which is why on our story they have more difficulty with constructions uh, such as reversible passives and object relatives, again, for the non-linguist doesn't matter, uh, where the actor doesn't precede the action. That's the crucial thing. 
Similarly, Fernanda Ferreira and her colleagues uh, discuss what they call good enough parsing, where people apparently rely on linear order and semantic plausibility rather than syntactic structure. And it's well known that we see similar symptoms in language comprehension by agrammatic aphasics. And Heather Vanderlei has argued that a particular population of children with specific language impairment behave as though they're processing language through something like a linear grammar. Uh, The literature describes these so-called strategies or heuristics as something separate from language, but there's still mappings between phonology and meaning. They're just simpler ones that bypass syntax. So um, we conjecture that the language processor makes use of both syntactic grammar and the simpler linear grammar, and when the two kinds of rules produce conflicting analyses, interpretation is slower and less stable, even when the syntax wins out. And when the syntactic rules break down under conditions of stress or disability, then the linear grammar is still there doing its thing. We've also come across two full-blown languages whose grammar appears to be close to a linear grammar, and others have come along that I haven't looked at very closely yet. But one of them is Riau Indonesian. This is a vernacular with several million speakers described by David Gill. Gill argues that this language has no syntactic parts of speech, no inflectional morphology like tense or plural or agreement. Uh, Known characters in the discourse are freely omitted. And things that English expresses with syntactic subordination are expressed in Riau by simply jamming simple sentences together like boy, kiss, love, girl. The word order is pretty free, but actors tend to precede actions and actions tend to precede patience. But here's... um, some illustration of the freedom of this language. If you have the the expression chicken eat, this can mean all of these different things depending on the context. And uh, the ones at the bottom where you say chicken eat and you mean someone is eating with the chicken, uh, they require a lot, or uh, where the chicken is eating, they require a lot of contextual support, but people do say these things. So this, again, looks like a linear grammar. So here's basically a full language that's syntactically simple in our sense. Uh, Another example is the controversial case of Piraha, uh, studied extensively by Dan Everett. This has exuberant morphology, so it's not simple in this respect. Uh, It seems to have a syntactic noun-verb distinction and fairly fixed word order, but no definite or indefinite articles, no markers of plurality, no agreement, da-da-da. Now, Everett's most famous claim is that Piraha lacks recursion, that is, subordinate clauses. Everything that's expressed in English with recursive syntax either just jams simple sentences together or requires some sort of circumlocution. So this looks like a syntactically relatively simple language, though not as simple as Riau Indonesian. So to sum up, um, we find that remarkably similar grammatical systems turn up in all these different scenarios. And this suggests that linear grammar is quite a robust phenomenon entrenched in the modern human brain. It provides a scaffolding on top of which fully syntactic languages can develop, either in an individual, as in the case of the basic variety, or in a community, as we've seen with sign languages and creoles, and it provides a sort of safety net when syntactic grammar is damaged, as we've seen with aphasia and specific language impairment. And we've also seen that you can say a lot without syntax, for example, in Riau Indonesian, uh, though having syntax gives you a lot more fancy tools for expressing yourself. So let me go back to the original question about the evolution of the human ability to learn language. 
I suggest that we, can th- that we can think about it through reverse engineering, asking what kind of system there could have been that preceded the modern human language faculty. And I think linear grammar is a good candidate. As I said at the beginning, I have no idea how we could prove it, nor um, when, when the hominid line achieved either linear grammar or syntactic grammar. Maybe someday we'll get better evidence from genetics, but for now I'm happy to see it as an intriguing hypothesis. So altogether then, uh, we think this is telling us a lot of interesting and new things about the texture of the human faculty, and I'm eager to get on with filling in the picture further. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.